from deep inside your audio device of choice. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's not necessarily because of anything that's going on in the world right now or in the United States or not, but it's time to take a look at how we're handling our dominion on the planet Earth. Sounds so good when you yell it, doesn't it? New evidence involving the ancient poop of some of the huge and astonishing creatures that once roamed Australia indicates the primary cause of their extinction around 45,000 years ago wasn't climate change. It was humans. Led by Monash University in Victoria, Australia and the University of Colorado Boulder, the team used information from a sediment core drilled in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Australia to help reconstruct past climate and ecosystems on the continent. The core contains layers of material blown and washed into the ocean, including dust, pollen, ash, and spores from a fungus called Sporomiella. Isn't that a uh, snack food they have down there? That thrived on the dung of plant-eating mammals. The abundance of these spores is good evidence for a lot of large mammals on the southwestern Australian landscape until about 45,000 years ago, it said chief researcher. Then in a window of time lasting just a few thousand years, the megafauna population collapsed. This is based on a paper published in Nature Communications. Megafauna, thousand pound kangaroos, two ton wombats. They're cute. 25 foot long lizards. There's your Geico commercial. 400 pound flightless birds. 300 pound marsupial lions. That I would like to see. And Volkswagen sized tortoises who had their emission systems docked. No, sorry. More than 85% of Australia's mammals, birds, and reptiles weighing over 100 pounds went extinct shortly after the arrival of the first humans. But wait, we're still at it. report in the journal Science Advances details the grim realities facing a majority of the non-human primates in the world, apes, monkeys, tarsiers, lemurs, and lorises, They inhabit ever-shrinking forests across the planet. This review is the most comprehensive conducted so far. According to the researchers, and the picture it paints is dire. We're losing our primates. Alarmingly, about 60% of primate species are now threatened with extinction. About 75% have declining populations. That doesn't include us, of course, because... We have dominion. This truly is the 11th hour for many of these creatures, said University of Illinois anthropology professor Paul Garber, co-author of the study. Several species of lemurs, monkeys, and apes, such as the ring-tailed lemur, Udzunga red colobus monkey, colobus monkey, Yunan, Yunan snub-nosed monkey, white-headed langur, and growers gorilla, are down to a population of a few thousand individuals. In the case of the Hainan gibbon, a species of ape in China, there are fewer than 30 individuals left. Another critically endangered ape, the Sumatran orangutan, lost between 60, lost 60% of its habitat between 1985 and 1987. These species faced a host of threats. Hi, I'll be your host of threats tonight. From th- hunting, the illegal pet trade, and habitat loss as humans continue to log tropical forests, build roads, and mine in, quote, needlessly destructive and unsustainable ways, according to Garber. These primates cling to life in the forests of countries such as China, Madagascar, Indonesia, Tanzania, and the Democratic Republic 
of Congo. Sadly, he adds, in the 20, next 25 years, many of these primate species will disappear unless we make conservation a global priority. Just four countries, Brazil, Indonesia, Madagascar, and Congo, host two-thirds of all species of primates, making them obvious targets for measures to halt and perhaps even reverse the primate extinction trend. And speaking of primates, the former business manager of pop star Alanis Morissette has admitted that he stole over $7 million from her and other celebrities. Jonathan Schwartz, not the one you're thinking of, if you're thinking of a Jonathan Schwartz, was charged with fraud over claims he transferred the singer's money into his own accounts. Will it be safe there? When initially counted, uh, confronted by, about the theft, Schwartz lied and said he had invested the money in an illegal mar- marijuana growing business. It's a good excuse. He handled Morissette's finances between 2009 and 2016. He was responsible for collecting revenue, managing her accounts, and organizing the bill payment. In federal court, Schwartz admitted to stealing $4.8 million from Morissette and more than $2 million from unnamed other celebrities. His lawyer said Schwartz cooperated fully with the investigation, accepted responsibility, and now faces a jail sentence of between four to six years. Last year, Morissette sued him and his former company for $15 million in damages. That led to an internal investigation. The company said it was shocked to discover Schwartz had been using the money to sustain a lavish lifestyle. Me, personally, I think it would be more shocking if he stole all that money to maintain a threadbare lifestyle. But that's just me. uh, But, ladies and gentlemen, please don't think that this happens all the time in show business. It does, but don't think that. I guess that wasn't her hand in her pocket, was it? Hello, welcome to the show. Feel drunk, but I'm sober. 
From Santa Monica, California, the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer. It's the Edge of America. I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. This is the way they do it somewhere else. The Foreign foreign Secretary of Great Britain, Jack Straw, and the rest of... Uh, the government and MI6, their version of the uh, CIA, will have to defend against claims that they participated in the 2004 kidnapping of a Libyan dissident and his wife. That's a ruling this week by the British Supreme Court. Claims that the extraordinary rendition and torture of Abdul Hakim Belhaj breached rights enshrined in the Magna Carta should be put before an English court. That's the decision of the unanimous judgment by seven justices. UK's highest court ruled that government ministers could not claim, quote, state immunity, unquote, or escape trial on the grounds of the legal doctrine of, quote, foreign acts of state, unquote. Dismissing the government's appeal in the Belhaj case, Lord Mance said the use of torture, quote, has long been regarded as abhorrent by English law, unquote, because individuals must be protected from deliberate physical mistreatment while in custody. The critical point, in my view, he continued, is the nature and seriousness of the misconduct alleged at however high a level it may have been authorized. What actually happened in this case, apparently, is that the then head of counterterrorism at MI6 sent a letter to then head of Libya, Muammar Gaddafi's intelligence chief, Musa Kusa, tipping him off to the existence of, the dis- of this dissident and his wife. They were captured and tortured. Another justice, Lord Sumption, said the conduct of other governments involved were sovereign acts, and if the U.S., Malaysia, Thailand, and Libya were being sued, they would have enjoyed immunity. However, they have not been sued. Only the government and agents of the United Kingdom have been. Belhaj and his wife, therefore, must be permitted to sue the government. They were abducted in Bangkok in March 2004 and flown by the CIA from Bangkok to Gaddafi's interrogation and torture cells. In Tripoli, two weeks later, Tony Blair paid his first visit to the country, embracing Gaddafi and declaring that Libya had recognized a common cause with us in the fight against extremism and terrorism. At the same time in London, the Anglo-Dutch oil company Shell announced that it had assigned a 110 million pound deal for gas exploration rights off the Libyan coast. Three days after that, a second Libyan dissident, Sami al-Sadi, was bundled on a plane in Hong Kong and taken to Tripoli in a joint British-Libyan extraordinary rendition 
and operation. Saadi's wife and four children were also kidnapped and taken to Libya, the youngest a girl aged six. The family was incarcerated. Saadi and Belhaj were held for more than six years and say they were subjected to torture throughout their detention. Evidence of MI6 involvement in the Libyan's ordeal emerged in correspondence that was found inside the abandoned office of Gaddafi's former minister and intelligence chief after the regime fell. Among the papers was a fact signed by the MI6 chief in which he made clear that the agency had supplied the intelligence that made it possible for the couple to be located and detained. Last July, the British prosecutor decided there was insufficient evidence to prosecute the MI6 head, despite concluding he'd been in contact with the U.S. and Libya and that he'd sought political authority for some of his actions. Scotland Yard officers who investigated the affair were said to be furious at the decision. This account from the Guardian newspaper, Bell Hodges' lawyer said they would be seeking permission to mount a judicial review. The other detainee settled their claim in 2012 when the British government paid them £2.2 million. But Bell Hodge has refused to settle on this. They also receive an apology from the British government, he and his wife. This would amount to an admission of involvement in a grave human rights abuse. Now, inside the bubble, the U.S. Supreme Court considered this week whether high-level U.S. officials can be held liable for the unconstitutional treatment of a group of non-citizens detained after 9-11. The long-running case dates to the months after the attacks when hundreds of Arab and South Asian men, many Muslims, were arrested and detained as part of a nationwide terrorism organization. Six plaintiffs say they were beaten, strip-searched, and treated as terrorism suspects because of their religion and ethnicity. The men, not U.S. citizens, lacking lawful immigration status, were held for months in a highly restrictive set of conditions in a federal detention center in Brooklyn, Brooklyn. That's bad enough, but none were found to have any connection to terrorism. Two of the court's liberal justices seemed particularly troubled during oral arguments about the length of incarceration and treatment of the men months after 9-11. Quote, you know from day one that many of them have nothing to do with terrorists, and yet you allow that system that might have been justified in October to persist for months and months when these people are being held in the worst possible conditions of confinement. Ginsburg said to the acting Solicitor General. Stephen Breyer, another justice, suggested such lawsuits were sometimes necessary as a deterrence at the highest levels of the government. The question before the High Court is not whether the six men were mistreated, but whether they can bring a case for civil damages against high-ranking officials in the Bush administration. The case was allowed to proceed by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and former Attorney General Ashcroft and former FBI Director Mueller were appealing it. The shorthanded court is even more so for this argument. Two liberal justices recused themselves because of their earlier work in the Second Circuit and in the solicitor's, Solicitor General's office. The first time the Supreme Court recognized a limited right for individuals to sue government officials was in a 1971 case. The court has been hesitant to expand that right. The acting Solicitor General urged the justices not to order what he said would be a massive extension. Chief Justice Roberts seemed to agree, saying it would be an extraordinary departure to hold officials personally liable. I understand the argument that there are constitutional violations, but the question you're asking the court to do is to shape a remedy for that, a remedy that Congress has not provided, he said. I wonder why. 
The lawsuit is third filed against Ashcroft and others to reach the high court involving claims of alleged harsh, harsh treatment of Muslims arrested after 9-11. In 2009, the court ruled that top officials were not liable for allegedly discriminatory actions of their subordinates unless they'd ordered the measures. Well, we'll find out. Two different ways of handling it, ladies and gentlemen. News from inside and outside the bubble. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Oh, let's cheer up. Let's hear some apologies of the week. We're so sorry. When the press pool was allowed in the Oval Office on Friday evening, this is inauguration night, there was some confusion about whether the bust of Martin Luther King was still in the Oval Office. Pool reporter Zeke Miller of Time initially couldn't see it and sent word that the bust had been removed. It was still there. Press Secretary Sean Spicer tweaked Miller on Twitter, or tweeted him on Tweaker, calling the incident a reminder of the media danger of tweet first, check facts later. Miller apologized to his colleagues, and Spicer tweeted, quote, apology accepted. More about Sean Spicer later in this broadcast. Dateline Dallas actor Judge Reinhold has pleaded no contest to a real judge, I guess, to misdemeanor disorderly conduct in an airport security dispute at Love Field in Dallas. The Dallas Morning News reports Reinhold entered the plea and, and accepted deferred adjudication. There go the judge. He was arrested December 8th after refusing a TSA screening. He says he walked through a screener but wouldn't let agents check his backpack, which contained DVDs and CDs. Babe, we're into streaming now. He was charged with a Class C misdemeanor, or a Class CD misdemeanor, that should be, after an altercation with TSA and Dallas police. He apologized in a statement Wednesday, repeating his apology after he was released from jail in December when he cited an adverse reaction to medication for a respiratory infection. This week, through his Dallas attorney, I'm sorry for being such a dumb A with the TSA and continue to respect and support the work of the Dallas Police Department. Steve Harvey tweeted an apology on Tuesday morning, his 60th birthday. I offer my humblest apology for offending anyone, particularly those in the Asian community. Last week, Harvey tweeted, It was not my intention, and the humor was not meant with any malice or disrespect whatsoever. The statement came as a result of Harvey taking heat for making jokes about Asian men on his daytime talk show. During a recent segment on dating books, Harvey highlighted How to Date a White Woman, a practical guide for Asian men, and then joked that it could only be one page long. Excuse me, do you like Asian men, Harvey said, referencing what the book might say? No, thank you. It's daytime humor, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the best apology in the world. You might call it the Rolls-Royce of apologies. Rolls-Royce will pay a about a $700 million penalty to settle corruption cases with U.K. and U.S. authorities, according to a court. They'll pay much of that to the U.K.'s serious fraud office. They're not kidding, which conducted its biggest ever investigation into the firm, finding conspiracy to corrupt or failure to prevent bribery bribery in China, India, Thailand, and elsewhere. The firm apologized unreservedly for cases spanning nearly a quarter of a century. The investigation revealed 12 counts of conspiracy to corrupt or failure to prevent bribery in seven countries. Those mentioned, along with uh, Nigeria and Malaysia. Rolls-Royce said it will also pay $170 million to the U.S. Justice Department and you know, $26 million to Brazilian regulators. 
just because they're nice. Described by the judge as a jewel in the UK's industrial crown, Rolls-Royce now makes engines for military and civil planes, as well as for trains, ships, nuclear submarines, and power stations. I don't think they make Rolls-Royces anymore, though. The Philadelphia Ethics Board has doled out a $62,000 fine to District Attorney Seth Williams for his failure to disclose five sources of income and 89 gifts. That became known this week. The fine is the largest in the board's 10-year history. It's the Rolls-Royce of fines for them and includes a first-of-its-kind recovery clause as well. And the city must pay the city... uh, Williams must pay the city $2,800 for the value of the gifts he received. Gifts came from individuals that had a financial interest that the district attorney was able to substantially affect through official action at the time they gave the gifts, according to the ethics board. He put out a statement. He says he will work every day to earn back the trust and respect of you all. I apologize to the people of Philadelphia, the hardworking and talented staff of the DA's office, my supporters, the friends who supported me and asked nothing in return, and most of all to my family who have had to endure unwarranted attacks for my shortcomings. He's been... Investigated by the Ethics Board since August. Importantly, he's also under investigation by the FBI for a charitable foundation in his name. Hey, it's it's going around. Deadline Frankfurt. What's up with the Frankfurters? Deutsche Bank's chief executive apologized this week for the bank's selling and pooling of toxic mortgage securities in the run-up to the financial crisis of 2008, prompting a $7.2 billion settlement with the United States. Anybody, any banker prosecuted? No, it's a bank. Our conduct in this matter, which occurred from 2005 to 2007, falls short of our standards and is unacceptable. We apologize unreservedly for it. That's the statement of John Cryan. (laughs) Yes, it is a shame. Who took over as CEO in July 2015. We have subsequently exited, exited many of the underlying activities and comprehensively improved our standards. As we enter 2017... We are pleased to have resolved this matter. The Justice Department said Deutsche Bank would pay a civil monetary penalty of $3.1 billion to the Treasury and provide $4.1 million in consumer relief to homeowners, borrowers, and communities harmed by its practices. Eve Smith has pointed out at NakedCapitalism.com that much of that money, as it's touted up by the government, consists of things the bank in these settlements would have done anyway. But... A Chicago River North neighborhood nightclub is apologizing to patrons after letting one of its guests bring in a racially insensitive piñata the night before Martin Luther King Day. Matt Solita, a DJ who regularly plays downtown, was spending time off at El Jefe when he said he saw the very minstrel-looking black piñata with big white eyes, red lips, and no pants getting passed around the club. I was with friends of color. It was very embarrassing for me to have brought them there. He said nobody would tell Salida who brought the three-foot-tall piñata to the bar, and they laughed it off as an inside joke. An executive at El Jefe, a mini-chain based in Arizona, has since reached out to Salida to apologize. A shift manager at the bar who declined to give his name said a customer brought in the piñata without the club's knowledge. The bar took action once the manager realized what was going on. Robin Moore, a spokeswoman for the Riot Hospitality Group that owns El Jefe, released a statement saying the bar neither purchased nor provided the piñata to the group and apologized to anyone who was offended by the situation. We will use it as a teaching moment for our staff. Racially insensitive piñata, ladies and gentlemen. And 
Dateline, Fukui, Japan. A crane collapsed Friday night at the Takahama power station in Fukui Prefecture, damaging a building housing spent nuclear fuel. No one was injured in the accident. Although the roof of the adjacent building was damaged, nothing fell into the spent nuclear fuel pool below it. The crane also damaged the roof of another building nearby. A wind warning was in effect in the area. Strong winds were blowing. An official apologized for the accident at a news conference, saying the utility would re-examine the risk of crane accidents amid strong winds. Always a good thing to re-examine. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Sean Spicer mentioned earlier, the uh, new press secretary of the new administration, kind of looked like he was in an angry hostage video Saturday afternoon after he denounced the news media for trying to imply that the audience in attendance at Friday's inauguration was not the largest in history. It makes... um, it makes a whole week sound like an episode of a reality series, doesn't it? This week, for the first time, reality gets all too real. And for the businessman turned president, the tasks get more complicated and confusingly more simple. Mr. President-elect, you know, you know what's great? What's that, Kellyanne? Well, now that you're going to have the official White House Twitter account, mm-hmm. you can sort of let your own Twitter account go on a kind of lovely hiatus. Kellyanne? Yes, sir. Here's your task for this week. Yes, sir. Whatever I you want. I want you to deliver me the names of everyone in this operation who thinks I should stop tweeting. <laughs> well, I'm sure all of them have your best... Can in- you do that? <laughs> Would I have to include myself on the list if that happened to be true? I'd be very disappointed in you if you didn't. But there's not going to be any retaliation. Can you accomplish your task? I need to know. Yes, sir. Great. I won't tweet that we had this conversation. Ivanka. Yes, Dad? Wrights tells me we're way behind in appointing people to run the uh, government. Mm-hmm. He told me the same thing. I told him to tell you. Good. Based on what he told me, which I think you know, here's your task for this week. Okay. Find some more people for me to appoint, like a couple hundred, all great people. Have their paperwork on my desk by a week from today. Do you think you can do that? Honestly? Of course. I love honesty. I'm not sure that's possible. I'd hate to have to fire you. You can't. I'm your daughter. Mm. Forgot. I could give you a much smaller office. They're all pretty small. Okay. How about if they're not all great people? President Obama. Mr. President-elect, congratulations. Thanks. That's very nice. I have a task for you this week. (laughs) I think I'm going on a long vacation. First, you need to do this. Okay. I'm just going over the inauguration remarks I wrote. And it looks like I trash you and Bush and Clinton a whole bunch. A little out of the order, right? Hey, I'm a change agent. Hmm. Your task is to sit there and smile through it. Can you do it? Of course I can do it. Just I'll just visualize Palm Springs. What about uh, Bush and Clinton? Camera's going to be on you. Trust me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's asking a lot. For you to smile? For me to trust you. But okay. No teeth, but no grimace. Reince. 
Yes, Mr. President. Feels good to say that, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Excuse me? Yes, it does, Mr. President. Okay. Now, Rach, your task this week. Yes, sir. I mean, yes, Mr. President. Good. Your task is the speech of the CIA. Mr. President, it's your first public appearance since the festivities. It's just to tap down the potential morale problem there. Oh, I know, but... And uh, when they have a morale problem, they have an interesting way of dealing with it, as we've seen. But it's such a short speech. Mm -hmm. Just to say you're a full supporter of theirs and pay tribute to their service, in and out, five minutes tops. Okay. Here's your task. Mm -hmm. Put some things back in the notes about the size of my crowd yesterday, about how the media keeps lying. I didn't see any of that in there. Well, we didn't think it was... Your task is to put it back in. Can you do that? Including the stuff about you being an intellectual? I think the CIA would like to know that. Smart people like smart people. Even the stuff about the best inaugural ball in history? Ah, that you can leave out. Everybody knows that. Okay? Can you accomplish this task in the next two hours? Yes, I can. I, I, I didn't hear you. Yes, I can, Mr. President. New team, new tasks, same mission. We are going to make this format right again. Now, the world is his boardroom. Via Presidentis, this week on Most of This Country. From Santa Monica, this is Le Show, and now, ladies and gentlemen, News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersall, Jr., Who does not exist? Budweiser, which rebranded itself America last year. Will they be Mexico this year? I don't think so. Is no longer Team USA's beer. This according to Ad Age. Anheuser-Busch InBev has ended its sponsorship of the U.S. Olympic team after a 32-year run that began with the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. We continually evaluate our sponsorships as our business priorities evolve. We're adjusting our portfolio to reflect those priorities. We're proud of our long-term partnership with the USOC and all that we've accomplished together. On behalf of America's athletes, said Elko van der Noel, Anheuser-Busch InBev's Vice President for Experiential Marketing. Come on. Wouldn't you love to be a vice president for experiential marketing? Think of the experiences. Think of the marketing. The brewer did not immediately respond to a question about the value of its latest deal. Sports Business Journal stated the 2016 Rio Games marked the end of a four-year deal worth a reported $13 million. Chief Marketing Officer for the USOC confirmed in an email that the deal ended in December after a long and great partnership. After asked if the USOC had lined up a new beer sponsor, she said... We'll share any new partner news when the time is right. A former AB InBev executive told AdAge the Olympic sponsorship is not a good fit for the brewer. The Winter Games don't fall in a key consumption period for beer. And the Olympics come shortly after the Super Bowl in which the brewer puts a huge marketing bet with multiple ads. While the Summer Games align better with the summer drinking season, they're not a great fit for beer brands because viewership skews older and more female. The former executive said, beer brands tend to target young adult males, although some brands have made a concerted effort lately to reach females. 
the former executive of the company, said you can only support so much and you've got to prioritize. Sports, by the way, started skewing female when they added synchronized swimming and uh, rhythmic gymnastics. Just saying. Sports Business Journal noted that the Brewers are the latest in a string of high-profile partners to not renew with the USOC heading into a complicated Olympic cycle. Facing headwinds going into a period in which three consecutive games will be held in East Asia, scaring some sponsored worried about maintaining fan engagement. They get engaged during the Citibank, which began sponsoring the USOC in 2012, confirmed in December it did not renew its deal. Other sponsors that decided against renewing after Rio include Hilton, TD Ameritrade, Ameritrade, and AT&T. USC's USOC spokesman John Mason disagreed with the notion that the committee was facing headwinds. He pointed to a new deal the IOC announced with the Chinese internet giant Alibaba, the official cloud services and e-commerce platform services partner of the games, a deal that runs through 2028. USOC sponsors on board for the next Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang include Bridgestone Tires, Dick's Sporting Goods, and Comcast. Oh, we love Comcast. But wait, there's more. The International Golf Federation was not aware that women were not full members of the Kasumigaseki Country Club which just happens to be the site of the Olympic golf for the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo, according to golf.com. report by The Guardian said that the IOC had expressed concern over the issue and would reach out to the IGF, the International Golf Federation, to see if they could influence the club to grant their female members full membership status. The report went on to say it was unclear whether the IOC or IGF knew about the restrictions, which IGF Vice President Ty Votaw confirmed to Golf.com this week. Votaw said the country club is working on a resolution to the discriminatory policies of the club. It bars its female members from playing on Sundays and some holidays. One possible resolution on the table is moving the event from that club to Wakasu Golf Links, a public course by Tokyo Bay. Golf's surge in popularity in Asia, especially on the LPGA Tour, makes the location of the 2020 Olympic Games ideal for the sports promotion on that side of the globe. With the club coming under fire, Tokyo Governor Yuriko Koike issued a public statement last week urging the club to fully admit its women members. Sunday, baby. Sunday. Because... The Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Even on Sunday. Yes. Every day. And now... So, among or amidst the confusion that seems to be rampant in the 
Trump administration on its first couple of days. This from the Washington Post. Trump transition officials last week phoned inspectors general in at least a handful of cabinet departments to indicate that they could soon be removed from their posts. This would be a break from the bipartisan tradition of letting IGs stay in their jobs as long as they want to. The Trump transition team contacted inspectors general in the Treasury and Labor Departments. Somebody cares about the Labor Department? And at least one other key department that confirmed the approach as long as it was not identified. After some inspector generals, inspectors general, pardon me, protested, a more senior member of the Trump transition team ordered a new round of phone calls within days to reassure inspectors general they would not be forced from their posts. Any effort to, to oust inspectors general might spark a political backlash. The last time a president removed all of them was when President Ronald Reagan did so in 1981. He dismissed all the IGs at the time, drawing sharp attacks from lawmakers and the public. He later rehired five of them. In an email, the Office of the Treasury Department Inspector General noted that recent precedent suggests the presidential transition will not affect its leadership. Trump transition officials did not reply to emails seeking their comment. He, the new president, had lambasted House Republicans earlier this month because they had attempted to weaken a congressional ethics office. After widespread criticism of that move, they backed down in about a day and a half. News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. As is News of the Warm, won't you? I think you will, whether you want to or not. Soft, listen to the warm. Almost three quarters of Japan's biggest coral reef has died. I didn't even send a note, according to a report that blames its demise on rising sea temperatures caused by global warming. The Japanese Environment Ministry says 70% of the Seikeisei Lagoon in Okinawa had been killed by a phenomenon known as bleaching. That occurs when unusually warm water causes coral to expel the algae living in their tissues, causing the coral to turn completely white. Unless water temperatures quickly return to normal, the coral eventually dies from lack of nutrition. The plight of the reef, located in Japan's southernmost reaches, has become extremely serious in recent years, according to the ministry, whose survey of 35 locations in the lagoons last November and December found that 70% of the coral had died. It's now turned dark brown and is now covered with algae. Well, but I... Ministry report follows warnings by the Coral Reef Watch program at the U.S. NOAA that global coral reaching, bleaching, they're bleaching out, could become the new normal due to warming oceans. Experts, uh-oh, said that bleaching had spread to about 90% of the Seikisei Reef, a popular diving spot that covers 400 square miles, kilometers, sorry. A similar survey conducted last year found that just over 56% of the reef had died, indicating bleaching has spread rapidly in recent months. You shut up, bleachy. The acidification of the ocean expected as seawater absorbs increasing amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere will reverberate throughout the West Coast's marine food web of the United States, but not necessarily in ways you might expect, according to new research. 
Dungeness crabs will likely suffer as their food sources decline. That fishery is valued about $220 million annually. But pteropods and copepods, tiny marine organisms with shells that are vulnerable to acidification, will likely experience only a slight overall decline because they're prolific enough to offset much of the impact. Researchers from North Carolina State University and the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine have found that while advanced wood-burning cookstoves can provide benefits to the environment and climate, these benefits are less than expected due to higher emissions measured in the field, in rural Malawi, that is, compared to laboratory settings. Pollutant emissions from these stoves were much higher in Malawi than was reported in lab testing, due in part to how the stoves were being used. There's interest in promoting the use of forced draft wood-burning cook stoves in the developing world because normal wood-burning stoves emit black carbon particles and other pollutants that can contribute to both human health problems and global climate change. These findings may also explain the results of the recent cooking and pneumonia study. We'd like to get funding for that. They found no effect on childhood pneumonia from providing households with these forced draft stoves. One reason for the discrepancy between the field and the lab is that likely in the field the stoves are most often not used in strict accordance with the guidelines. Many households relied on large pieces of wood, such as logs or tree limbs that didn't fit into the stoves as neatly as the small pieces of wood called for by the manufacturers and used in the lab. That's likely because it takes a lot of work for villagers to chop the wood down to optimal size. They might always have the wherewithal to do so. Other potential factors include the quality or type of wood available, or the possibility that patterns of stove use activity in lab testing don't accurately mimic real-world use. Get out of the lab. Get into the world. And as you probably already know, temperature data for 2016 so is likely to have edged ahead of 2015 as the world's warmest year. Data from NASA and the UK Meteorology Office shows temperatures were about 0.07 degrees Celsius above last year. NASA says 2016 was the third year in a row to break the record. We're number one in warming up the world. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, the um, <laughs> the bizarre kerfuffle about the size of the crowds and the Trump administration's press secretary's insistence on um, things which appear not to be true, um, seems to have obscured the earlier, probably more substantive dispute over what are reported in the mainstream media to be assurances by James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, and the CIA... Um, they list other intelligence agencies as having signed on to their assertions, although, the interestingly, the State Department's intelligence agency, which was the only intelligence agency that got Saddam's WMDs correct in the run-up to the Iraq War, that agency was explicitly excluded from participating in the review of the Russian alleged involvement in the hacking or leaking 
of the emails from the Democratic National Committee. As I, I say, hacking or leaking because two former U.S. intelligence officials and one former British ambassador maintain stoutly that the material was leaked by an insider, not hacked from outside. Anyway, the person who in the waning days of the Obama administration was most adamant, he wasn't adamant, he was just adamant in pointing out the agency's opinion regarding Russian involvement in the election, was James Clapper, Director of National Intelligence. This is James Clapper, March 12, 2013, testifying to the Senate Intelligence Committee. He was asked by Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? Clapper replied, no, sir. Senator Wyden, it does not. Director Clapper, not wittingly. There are cases where they could inadvertently perhaps collect, but not wittingly. Unquote. Then, in an interview with NBC, he defended his testimony by saying, I responded in what I thought was the least untruthful manner by saying no. Though he did admit his answer was, quote, too cute by half. He indicated his response to Wyden turned on the definition of collect, which is, of course, a more substantive verb than is. It was his least untruthful manner, his least untruthful answer. The former lead singer of the boy band Boys Are Us paid musical tribute to that stance. You don't have to lie to me Don't have to tell the truth All I want to hear Is what you're saying Cause when I stop believing It's like When I lose a tooth And hoping that it's so It's just like Praying that my ignorance is showing 
So when I ask you questions, don't let it bring you down. It only means I'm staying instead of going. So talk to me from somewhere near your heart, babe. Tiptoe through the facts, just like a of our friend the Adam. Andy Adam is not here. He was at the uh, Women's March. Got trapped. The U.S. Department... I think he got stepped on. The U.S. Department of Energy most likely will miss another key milestone next year in its nuclear waste cleanup agreement with the state of Idaho. Under that agreement in 1995, DOE committed to remove from the state some 65,000 cubic meters of stored transuranic waste before the end of next year. That would go to the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in New Mexico. That recently reopened following a radiation accident three years ago. Due to its long closure, its ongoing limited operations, and the vast amount of treated waste that is accumulated in Idaho, it appears impossible that DOE will meet the deadline of December next year. Unless Rick, Rick Perry takes over, and then officials acknowledge the problem during a Leadership and Nuclear Energy Commission meeting in Boise. Certainly the milestone is at risk. It's at great risk right now, says Jack Zimmerman, director of Deputy Manager of the Idaho Cleanup Project. There are more than seven, uh, sorry, more than 900 certified shipments stored at the site's Advanced Mixed Waste Treatment Project. Additional waste will be certified in the coming months. But with the shipment schedule of the depository limited due to ongoing repairs, DOE won't be able to send even half the shipments currently certified in Idaho 
before the deadline. Wouldn't you like your waste certified, ladies and gentlemen? Wouldn't that be nice? Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts. It's one of the poorest performers in the nation, based on a rating system used by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Its handling of security matters appears to be similarly weak. Nine violations were identified during a routine December security inspection at Pilgrim, according to a letter sent by the commission to Entergy Pilgrim's owner-operator. Six violations were found by inspectors. Three were reported by plant operators themselves. Details of the violations were not made public because they relate to security. But Entergy says the NRC's safety director did not effectively implement error reduction tools, maintain equipment availability, challenge unusual conditions, use prudent decision-making, and maintain complete and accurate documentation. Aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, it's a perfectly well-run plant. General Atomics, one of San Diego's most controversial military contractors and maker of the Predator drone, says it needs more time to respond to a federal inspection report blasting the questionable... Criticizing would be a better word, I think. Criticizing the questionable quality of the company's radiation detection devices for commercial reactors. A notice of nonconformance last November called out multiple failures of vital detection equipment, according to the San Diego Reader, including findings that General Atomics did not perform periodic testing of the chemical composition of the detector's coating material, nor did General Atomics verify the shelf life of the coating material. The firm failed to verify the adequacy of the calibration services, which could adversely affect the accuracy of the radiation monitoring systems detectors. Federal inspectors also reported they had witnessed staff adding and removing lead shields from the stack of lead bricks without documenting the change in configuration. Thus, staffers were unaware of the amount of scattered radiation and the effect of adding and removing lead from the cart on the amount of scattered radiation. The company has won a 30-day extension to formulate a reply to the criticism. I should think so. Think, boys, think. And girls. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission told French nuclear power company Arriva it will publish as early as next week the names of U.S. reactors that contain components from its forge that is suspected of falsifying documents, despite the company's claim the information is proprietary. French authorities opened an investigation last month into decades of alleged forgery relating to the quality of parts produced at the forge and used in power plants around the world. And back to Pilgrim at Plymouth, a valve that's part of a fan system that keeps one of that power station's two emergency diesel generators from overheating, hadn't been inspected or maintained since it was installed 16 years ago, according to a report from Energy. Plant workers discovered oil had leaked from the gearbox on a fan system used to cool emergency generator A during a routine monthly check last September. The oil pressure relief valve on the fan's gearbox had loosened, causing oil to leak. There was enough oil left in the gearbox for the generator to start up, said the report, but it would have been losing gearbox oil, and we assumed it would have overheated due to failure of the cooling fan from gearbox damage. Federal standards state each emergency generator should be capable of powering systems for 30 days. Generator A was declared inoperable until the gearbox problem was fixed. The longest the system can be out of service under federal regulations is 72 hours. The gearbox had been replaced in May 2000. It new one had a relief valve on the outside that the original one didn't have. Inspections were not updated to include any inspections or preventive maintenance 
for the new valve. Sleep well, everybody. Clean, cheap, safe. Too sleep-worthy to meet her, our friend the Atom. That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system across Japan, up and down Japan, too. Around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave. On the mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, around the world via the internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want it, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org, available for your smartphone through stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and WWNO.org. And it would be just like the press secretary of the president coming out and telling the truth. <laughs> if you could join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much, uh-huh. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, the playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts for that Valentine of yours at harryshare.com. And I'm on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> the president's keeping it alive at the Harry Share. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.